You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Um, my name is Mary Harper and I'm Africa Editor at uh, the BBC World Service and I have a special interest in Somalia. I've reported from the country for the past 25 years so it's great to be here and it's great to see so many people in the audience and also apparently we have lots and lots of people online as well which is wonderful. Um, and I'd like to welcome both of the audiences. Um, for, for the online audiences, um, we really want you to get involved in the conversation. So if you can um, come up with questions for the panel and uh, if you can put them in the chat box below the live stream, uh, then I'll take as many as I can during the question and answer session. And we want to give lots of time for uh, questions. So please think of as many difficult questions as you want for the panel. Um, for those who are uh, in the room, if you could please turn your phones to silent. But for those who are in the Twitter sphere, it would be great if you could tweet about the event. The hashtag is hashtag with Somalia. So um, there's already a bit of a buzz going on about this. So if you could keep that going, that would be great. And as far as um, this discussion goes, uh, basically a, a year ago, um, there was great optimism in Somalia which after a long and complex voting process, which involved a few thousand people rather than a few hundred people um, as had happened previously, this led to the selection of uh, President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed Farmajo. Uh, Mr. Farmajo has the name uh, Mr. Cheese because uh, his father was apparently very fond of cheese during the Italian colonial period. Um, and he's somebody who's also be had a very... Um, short-lived, uh, but he was a popular prime minister when he, when he was in that post some years previously. And in some ways, uh, some observers felt that if Somalia had been able to have a one-person, one-vote election, it's quite likely that Mr. Farmajo would have actually been the people's president as well. So there was a great deal of optimism about his election. Um, there have been some signs of progress under Mr. Farmajo. I think as a journalist, we always find uh, more room to criticise uh, than to praise. But really, uh, there, are, there have been some positive signs. Uh, for example, the fact that one year on, the same prime minister is still in office uh, is an achievement because they usually get sacked pretty fast. There's usually quite a fast turnover turnover of prime ministers, which leads to all sorts of problems. Also in December, the IMF commended the Somali authorities on their progress on policy reforms and also on the successful completion of the country's first staff-monitored program since the end of the Civil War. So there have been some positive steps. But for many people, especially perhaps those in Somalia, perhaps especially those in Mogadishu, uh, some of the optimism has really dissipated. Uh, for example, in October, there was what's referred to as Mogadishu's 9-11 with a massive truck bombing that killed more than 500 people. And there's also been many, many other attacks continuing in the country, uh, conducted not just by al-Shabaab, but by clan militias, <coughs> regional armies, land grabbers, all sorts of groups who continue to um, ensure that violence is a daily part of many people's 
lives. And in fact, something that was fairly um, worrying, one could say, that um, the BBC, where I work, every so often they uh, compile a map of Somalia and with who controls what territory, and they've just come up with a new one this month, and it shows that um, Al-Shabaab is actually in control of more, or at least in, has a significant presence in more parts of Somalia than it did 18 months ago, that actually various stretches along the coast, various towns, and especially various roads have actually been lost by AMISOM, the African Union Force, and the Somali army. Um, there's also uh, some fears of being expressed because uh, AMISOM is, s says at least that it's on the way out. <laughs> That's okay, I was wondering what was happening. <laughs> um, and uh, AMISOM has already, uh, 1,000 troops have already left AMISOM, another 1,000 are supposed to leave this year, and it's supposed to complete its withdrawal by the year 2020. And there does seem to be consensus amongst many observers that the Somali army is in no way ready to take over um, to guarantee the security of Somalis. As well as the security challenges, there are very big humanitarian issues. Uh, there's been years of drought. Uh, Somalia did, though, manage to avert what was widely predicted to be um, conditions set for famine, and it averted that last year, which, which is definitely an achievement. But it's estimated that about half uh, the country's population are in dire need of humanitarian assistance. And... Uh, in response to this, earlier this month, DFID and OCHA convened a high-level meeting in London to draw urgent attention to this humanitarian crisis and the need for a swift and substantial response. And the aim of this event here at the ODI is to kind of build on the momentum of that meeting and really try to drill down on what are the main drivers of conflict in Somalia and whether there is any prospect for peace and if it's achieved how it could be sustained, um, to ask uh, questions about what the Somali government and others in the international community perhaps particularly should do about security now that AMISOM has started to leave. And also this issue, um, there is an increasing number of countries that are getting actively involved in Somalia. For example, recently there's been various tussles between the UAE and Qatar and other countries, and what can be done to try to manage all of those influences that are converging on Somalia. Well, to answer these difficult questions, the um, ODI has assembled really what I would say is a dream panel. I couldn't have made up a better one. Um, so we have great people who, who can talk about this. Uh, to my left is Michael Keating, who's the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Somalia and head of the UN Assistance Mission to the country. Michael's had extensive experience um, working with political and peace-building transitions. He's worked as associate director at Chatham House. He's been a senior advisor to the Secretary General Special Envoy to Syria and also de deputy SRSG in Afghanistan. So he has a remarkable pedigree in these fields. Um, to my right is Sarah. 
Zara Pantoliano, I hope that's right, <laughs> who's the managing director here at the ODI, um, where she's led the humanitarian team for six years. She's a member of the Global Future Council on the Humanitarian System of the World Economic Forum and managing editor of Disasters Journal, as well as being a trustee of IRIN News and SOS Sahel. Um, Sarah's also worked uh, with the UNDP on its peacebuilding unit in Sudan. Joining us from Nairobi, uh, we can see at the bottom of the screen there, is a former colleague of mine, Rashid Abdi, who used to work uh, with BBC Monitoring, and I always used to read his analyses of the situation in the Horn of Africa. To, I learned a lo great deal from Rashid. He's now uh, the director of the Horn of Africa section of the International Crisis Group, and uh, he has a PhD in comparative religion and philosophy. He's also a fellow of the Rift Valley Institute and has worked uh, not only for the BBC but for the Daily Nation in Kenya. So he's a, a former journalist. And uh, last but not least here on the screen is Professor Ken Menkhouse, who's in North Carolina. Um, he's professor at Davidson College, where he's taught since the early 1990s. He's published uh, more than 100 articles, book chapters, monographs, and reports on Somalia, and is definitely one of the world authorities on the country. Uh, he did his PhD in Somalia in the early 90s, and he's also worked as a special political advisor for the UN operation in Somalia. So we really have got a stellar cast of people to talk to us today. So uh, welcome to the panel, and uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. I think, Michael, we'll start with you. Um, so it's been a year now since uh, President Farmajo uh, came to office, and it, it would be great if you could kind of give us an assessment of how you think him and his government have been doing this past year. Um, what are the main challenges his government faces, and not just his government, but the UN and other interested groups in Somalia? I mean, do we have any reason to be optimistic about Somalia, or should we just treat it as the basket case it's often referred to in media? I am shocked you're asking me that question, Mary. Uh, my answer is there are very strong grounds for continuing to be optimistic uh, about Somalia, uh, but that does not mean that the challenges the country faces uh, aren't formidable. Uh, as I like to say, people uh, who haven't been to Somalia for many years or who have never been there tend to have a, an image of the country which is defined you know, through uh, films like Black Hawk Down or Captain Phillips or other things. Uh, and the news of Somalia uh, tends to be of bombs and violence and hunger and famine. But of course, the reality is actually very different. Uh, for those of you who haven't been, say, to Mogadishu or many of the other cities uh, uh, and go back there after a while, the transformation is visible. Uh, so at a superficial level, things are definitely different. But that is not to say that the progress being made in Somalia uh, isn't uh, irreversible. The challenges are, of course, enormous. Um, you've touched on many of them already. Uh, it is a terrible place uh, to be a woman, uh, to have a child. Uh, it is uh, the human rights deficits are, are multidimensional. Um, uh, the number of people who are displaced, uh, the last year saw a million new displaced people on top of a million uh, previously. Um, the 
um, insecurity is a reality for most people in the population, uh, whether you're well off or poor, that insecurity takes uh, many different forms. Uh, and the most high-profile one was, of course, the bomb in Mogadishu on October the 14th. Unfortunately, the numbers keep climbing. We now mm -hmm. think it's over 600. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's the worst uh, improvised explosive device ever in the history of the world in terms of the number of people uh, killed or maimed. Uh, Al-Shabaab, despite the fact that I believe it is under a lot of pressure, uh, retains the capacity to inflict uh, enormous damage and is raising the cost of everything in Somalia, both the human cost, the financial cost of everything, making everything uh, much more difficult. Uh, and and uh, as you've also mentioned, um, you know, Somalia is in a part of the world that is considered to be very strategic, mm -hmm. and it continues to be a place in which uh, powers tend to play out their rivalries and in which their geopolitical ambitions uh, you know, crash into each other, mm -hmm. uh, and it has been very vulnerable to that. But having said that, I do think there have been some <coughs> extraordinarily positive things that have taken place uh, in the last uh, couple of years, and you know, perhaps uh, I can only really talk with some authority uh, for the period that I've been there, which is, is approaching two and a half years. And even in that period, you know, there are now conversations taking place in Somalia that simply were not taking place. Uh, a year ago, uh, whether in the socioeconomic field, whether in the security field, or in the political field. Uh, in the socioeconomic uh, field, I suppose the most uh, salient issues uh, relate to the determination of this government and this prime minister to try and raise taxes and revenues for the state, uh, whether through normalization of the relationship with the international financial institutions or by reaching a political understanding, as it were, with the private sector, that in return for paying taxes, the private sector will receive uh, services such as uh, security, infrastructure, uh, vocational training, and all the rest of it. That is not to say that these things are necessarily yet happening, but that conversation is very alive. And I don't know how closely I see there are many Somalis in the room, but no doubt you've been uh, watching all these uh, uh, issues in the port with people refusing to pay taxes and the Ministry of Finance saying, well, you've got to pay taxes and this provoking a discussion about where you collect the taxes and why can you collect taxes in Mogadishu and not in Kismayo. These kind of conversations were not taking place a year or two ago. Don't people get a bit annoyed now, I hear, that they're complaining that they now have to pay two sets of taxes, one to Al-Shabaab, even uh, people in the heart of Mogadishu, and then another set of taxes now to the government, and the government perhaps can't give them some of the things that Al-Shabaab can. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, in certain areas, Shabaab can provide security in a way that the government can't. So if the private sector is saying, we will pay you taxes if you are better at providing security than Al-Shabaab, then that is a much, a very strong incentive. And it's something I think the government is taking very seriously. Uh, and that actually leads to a, a second issue where I think there's real progress and a very different conversation going on, which is how can the security sector uh, be sorted out? And in the last 18 months, there's been an agreement on the national security architecture. 
there's adoption uh, of an approach to security called the comprehensive approach to security, which recognizes that security isn't just a military issue. It's also about rule of law and policing. It's about local governance. It's about countering violent extremism. And it's also about dressing, addressing some of the grievances uh, that fuel insecurity. So that's uh, very significant. And most recently, in the last couple of weeks, there's been the adoption of something called the transition plan. I think you referred to this, the security transition plan, you know, whereby uh, the Somalis are now defining an agenda over the next one to four years where they want to uh, assume much greater responsibility for security while recognizing that they are not in a position to do that yet. Uh, something that some of you may have heard of called an operational readiness assessment has been undertaken. It is very brave of the government to do this. Essentially what it was was a fairly intrusive review of what the capability of the Somali army and the Somali police are, uh, is rather, and that revealed that they are in very poor shape actually. Uh, and the Minister of Finance has embarked on a process to try and get the payroll sorted out. Uh, there's a recognition that you, know, you need to improve, strengthen institutions, not just train people, uh, and that uh, security is also about, uh, you know, working with local communities, building local governance systems. That's also a very big development. Mary, I don't think that was happening yeah. two years ago. It's new. Another positive development is last year a national development plan was adopted, the first one since the 1980s. Uh, and that is genuinely driving the conversation between the government and the development partners. I mean, you've got to be, you've got to have your stuff, you know, in the national development plan if you expect to get uh, funding from the, the the common pot. Now, of course, there are some partners to Somalia that don't, you know, non OECD DAC partners that don't necessarily go through these mechanisms. But still, it is increasingly getting traction. The idea that you need a development plan. And again, for those of you who are in the room who know Somalia, the idea that Somalia had a development plan a few years ago was fanciful. It was all about humanitarian aid and security. But now there's a development plan. Uh, that raises, a, I think, a, another issue, which is how can Somalia break uh, its what seems to be its perennial dependency upon humanitarian aid? What kind of investments can be made, given that the country, at one level, is actually very viable? I mean, it's got tremendous uh, resources, wind, power, solar power. It's got two phenomenal rivers. It used to be one of the biggest agricultural exporters in Africa, the biggest banana exporter in Africa. It does not have a massive population. I mean, the fundamentals are pretty good. And ironically, as a result of so many years of conflict, it's got a, an amazing diaspora, uh, extraordinary trading links. Uh, so, so there's some really th good things going for Somalia. And there's another conversation is, how do you get away from humanitarian aid exclusively and start investing in things like urbanization, water management, tertiary infrastructure, and so on, to create public works, jobs, uh, and things like that. So uh, let me, I mean, I, I, I know it would be more useful to have a, a conversation rather than a long kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of speech by me. But I, I just want to end at this point by saying I don't underestimate the political challenges and and fundamentally you said you know what what how does the UN see things I mean I see the UN's role is actually trying to help Somalis figure out what kind of state they want what kind of state Somali becomes is up to Somalis it's not up to anybody else you know the whole federalism 
project is about Somalis talking to themselves about what kind of powers they're prepared to share and what kind of powers they want to keep to themselves. Uh, it is a complicated discussion because it requires a constitutional agreement on the, whether there's a presidential system or a parliamentary system or some kind of mixture. What is the relationship between the federal government and the federal member states? Who has the authority to raise revenues? Who has the authority to assign revenues? Who has the authority to tax? Who has the authority to command you know, the police and the army and the maritime? Very complicated discussions. Uh, but what's exciting is being there right now with all these conversations taking place, not helped, by the way, by Somalia having a very fluid political uh, marketplace, which in my view, uh, needs to be, uh, you know, uh, stabilized. And there are a number of very practical ways in which it can be stabilized, because if it isn't stabilized, this commendable agenda by the government to, you know, get debt relief, to sort out the security sector, to deliver services, is going to be endlessly hostage to Somali politics. And the national political support in, uh, sport in Somalia is impeachment and motions of no confidence and you know, external actors taking and, and advantage of this. And yesterday, you know, speak. there was an impeachment motion against the, the, the speaker, which I gather an hour ago collapsed. There's another one against the prime minister, motion of no confidence. But this is, this is Somali politics. And I think at a certain point, there need to be stronger rules and regulations uh, to stabilize this. And in particular, as the president keeps saying, to do something about corruption which is really horrendous. I mean, the, the, the institutions, are, uh, you know, the law is very weak, uh, and, and, and fighting corruption is really going to be a fundamental issue and requires both structural and intrusive measures. Thank you very much, Michael, and there'll be um, plenty of time for you to answer people's questions uh, when, we, when we've um, gone through the other panelists. And uh, Sarah, if I could turn to you now. Um, the, the, the conflicts in Somalia are incredibly complex, and they've actually been going on for far longer than al-Shabaab's been in existence. It's been in existence for about a decade. Conflict in Somalia has been going on, internal conflict anyway, for at least 30 years. And you've recently republished a, a report here at the ODI analyzing whether the UN system is actually fit to sustain peace. And I wondered whether you could just talk us through this report and how it applies to Somalia. That would be really helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, this was quite a, a large endeavor that we were commissioned um, to you know, take forward by the UN agencies, funds, and programs. So that was the collective group of um, you know, agencies, funds, and programs of the UN um, that are supposed to deliver on this agenda that is called you know, sustaining peace, which really emerged from you know, all the reviews that happened in 2015 of the peace building architecture, peace operations, women, peace, and security. And it's actually enshrined in both a, a General Assembly and a Security Council resolution. So it's something that the UN somehow has to get on with and, and deliver. And it takes the whole concept of peace building, which has you know, always been quite projectized and technocratic into a much more all-encompassing concept that goes from prevention to addressing root causes of conflict, you know, working with parties to end hostilities, national reconciliation, and then recovery, reconstruction, development, like everything, really. Which, of course, is part of the problem, because the concept is so all-encompassing that it's become quite nebulous. And so what came out of the review was that actually the vast majority of 
I would say all the agency funding programs are really struggling to operationalize the concept, you know, to really make that meaningful in terms of programs and, you know, operations on the ground. So it's, it, it has become, we risks becoming a bit of a catch-all, you know, concept to which everything is tagged, so everything is sustaining peace. Somalia was supposed to be one of the case studies that we were supposed to, um, you know, to use for, for the review, but because of the pre-famine situation, we were not able to go to Somalia. So I'll just, I'll just say something about the general you know, findings and then how you know really they relate to Somalia so what, what came out you know beyond the, the how nebulous the concept is is also that in a way um, th there is not enough buy-in by the leadership the top leadership of the UN both at headquarters and in country in the concept Somalia is perhaps an exception but you know in many ways we haven't seen the concept being you know Either way, trickle down at the level of each in this individual agency fund or program, and you know the a directive come from other, you know, the the, the top of the organisation, you know, at headquarters or in country to say this is really an agenda that we need to deliver on. Um, in addition to that, in country you see a very, you know, fragmented capacity of resident coordinators to actually be able to lead the collective to deliver on this. They don't have the ability; they can master, you know, the the resources that are financial or human, you know, for the whole UN system to pull together and work together. There is no incentive to pull these resources, and that's not just in terms of coming together to, you know, to deliver programs, but even to do the analysis together, to do an analysis of the conflict. You say how long the conflict has been going on in Somalia. Um, you know, in, in each country that we examine, the analysis of the context and the conflicts is done in complete isolation or, you know, very, very little sort of joint um, effort. And the other big problem it really is, is around, you know, going be, you know, even beyond the UN system because, you know, within there is a lot of fragmentation and competition, but actually the partnership with government and civil society is often even worse. And I think, you know, particularly with local actors that came out as one of the weakest points in the review, you know, the ability to work with, you know, with the civil society, with forces in countries that actually sometimes, very often, are better placed in the UN in, you know, addressing, you know, delivering on the sustaining peace agenda um, and, 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 you know, doing an assessment really of what the UN can do, what its limitations are, what its comparative advantages and how to become a catalyst for others is something that unfortunately doesn't really happen. Now, what we're seeing with the current UN Secretary General is, is an effort to try and, you know, really push the system in a different direction. And I often say, you know, if he can succeed with the political, you know, sort of acumen he has and the knowledge of the system, then maybe the UN is doomed. Because, no, absolutely. Yeah. But there is definitely an effort to reform the development system, to, you know, to, to make both prevention and sustaining peace a focus, you know, for the UN going forward and to try to streamline some of the, you know, the administrative and, and the processes and, and, and systems. The other side of the equation that came out of the review is the role of member states, because of mm -hmm. course, you know, there is a lot the UN could do to, to do things better, but there's a, a lot more that the member states can do to enable the UN. And, you know, a big part of the problem is, you know, whilst obviously this is an, an agenda mandated by the member states, you know, it's General Assembly resolution, Security Council resolution, actually the member states that sit in the executive boards of these agency funds and programs operate very differently from those who sit in the General Assembly and the Security Council. So there has been actually no translation at the level of the executive boards of these agencies to say, that's what you need to deliver, that's how you need to deliver. And very little effort to empower the UN to do so, both in terms of political backing and financial resources. And it's not for me a matter of giving the UN more money to deliver, but the giving it different money to deliver. So, you know, moving away from the very projectized and, you know, sort of 
partitioned level of funding that the UN receives to deliver in country on this issue, but you know something which is much more systematic, structured, you know, pulled together. And, and in so, terms of Somalia, and so you itself, see all yeah. of this in Somalia, where actually at the level of the leadership, you see leadership, you know, in the UN, Michael, the the, the current RCHC, you know, they are, I, I think, are. A, quite a, you know, a rare example in the UN system of trying to, you know, first of all, own the concept, deliver on, on, you know, operationally on the concept, working with partners, working with the government to deliver, but being held back by, the, you know, this these challenges, both in terms of the structure of the UN in country, you know, how fragmented the different, you know, parts of the system are, the processes that don't enable, you know, that, that collegiate joined up operation, and of course the, the fragmentation of the member states behind with different agendas moving mm -hmm. in different directions, you know, supporting different parts <laughs> of the system, including the, the delivery on the security agenda in very different ways. And so, you know, I think it's a demonstration that even when you have the, you know, some of the best capacities in the system in country, you're still going to struggle you know, un until we have a, 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 a reform that is much deeper, you know, that comes from sort of um, higher up with member states to really enable that to happen. Thank you very much, Sarah. And if I could turn to uh, Rashid in Nairobi now. Um, Rashid, we've talked about how Amisom is um, planning to withdraw from Somalia and has already started the, protest, the, the process. And um, it would be good to get your thoughts on um, this, Rashid, like, how on earth is Somalia going to manage its security uh, if Amisom is not there? What should the government of Somalia, the UN and others be doing uh, in order to try to avert any p uh, potential crisis that would follow the departure of Amisom? Can we hear from Russia? Um, yes. Thank you, Russia. And uh, thank you also to ODI for organizing this event. Um, I think um, when the whole Amisom um, peacekeeping mission was conceived, uh, it was never going to be um, an open-ended uh, uh, engagement in Somalia or intervention. Um, it was, you know, a stopgap measure to allow uh, the Somali National Army and other security forces uh, basically to take progressive to take over from Amisom. Um, the Amazon mission is now in its 11th year, and uh, during that period, I think uh, Amazon has achieved significant, uh, you know, progress. They have managed to push out uh, Al Shabaab from the major towns. Uh, the, also, the key, uh, you know, uh, strategic uh, ports and also um, centers in in South Central Somalia. However, Al Shabaab continues to remain. Um, very strong in the countryside. And as I have uh, repeated many times, it is impossible to secure uh, these urban centers without also putting pressure on, on Al-Shabaab in the countryside. Al-Shabaab now enjoys free reign in the countryside. And I think that explains the dilemma for, for Amazon. Every time Amazon has tried to expand uh, beyond the urban centers, it has uh, stretched its supply lines and actually attracted uh, uh, attacks from, from Al Shabaab. And they have taken heavy casualties. And I think we don't speak much about it, but you know, you are now talking of probably the costliest um, operation in Africa. And countries like uh, Burundi, 
uh, Uganda, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia have actually lost uh, significant numbers of troops in Somalia. Now, to go back to your question, there's no doubt that Amazon will at some point leave. And Somalis also desire for Amazon to leave. And the problem is, is the Somali National Army capable of taking over the security responsibilities? And the answer clearly is no. Um, there is a debate on how long it will take the Somali National Army to be fixed, uh, how long the Somali National Army will be capable of taking over security responsibilities. But clearly, we are not talking of years. You know, probably we are talking of not less than five years. You know, this is going to be a long struggle. And any hasty withdrawal of Amazon is going to be catastrophic. And Rashid, do you think, do you think um, Amazon has an appetite to stay longer than it says it will? That is actually one of the biggest issues. Um, depends, first of all, on resources. Uh, there is no doubt that there is, a, there is conflict fatigue within Amazon. Um, soldiers uh, want to go back home. Uh, army commanders are fatigued and tired. So, you know, after a 10-year mission, um, it is going to be like that. It's not going to be any different. The problem, again, has been uh, the issue of resources and uh, the relations between Amazon and donors has not been very good in the last uh, two or three years, largely because of uh, funding cuts. So there are, I, I think, uh, clear challenges uh, for for Amazon. They, they, this was not this was not actually even um, a peacekeeping mission. This has become a peace enforcement mission. Uh, it has grown to a massive, you know, twenty-two thousand strong, uh, you know, uh, uh, troop, uh, you know, level. So, you know, the resources needed to keep this uh, Amazon mission going for years is also not going to be there, you know. Um, so, to, to go back to your question, I think there's no doubt that Amazon exit plan, um, you know, can only, be, can only work well if it is synchronized with also um, the building up of the Somali National Lab. Otherwise, I think... Um, for Amazon to basically say, because we are not getting resources, we want to leave the country. I think that will be clearly disastrous because the countries that will pay the price will ultimately be those countries that have contributed troops to Somalia. Uh, these are countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, and, and Uganda. So um, Amazon's uh, exit plan has to work with a transitional plan in which the Somali National Army is actually um, significantly uh, enhanced and that is not going to be a, uh, an easy task and there are many structural systemic problems with the somali national army and there are there are even people who question the very concept of a somali national army they say you know the, the current army as it exists is simply a glorified clan army and and so you know it, it's going to to require a lot of work to really build a professional uh, military, which is which is not corrupt. Remember, just uh, you know, a few months ago, the United States uh, government uh, stopped funding, stopped some critical uh, uh, you know assistance to the Somali National Army because of corruption concerns, and that I think is also uh, part of the problem. 
Rashid, thank you very much. Uh, we'll come back to you um, at the question and answer session. But if we could now um, turn to Ken. And uh, Ken, uh, one thing that uh, some people ask is that has it been a mistake to focus uh, so closely on al-Shabaab when Somalia is affected by so many other kinds of violence between uh, different clans, between regional armies. There's been quite a lot of violence between the federal states recently, violence over land, um, business and politician, politicians uh, ordering assassinations and so much more. Um, should we, you know, how are we going to address all these other kinds of violence in Somalia when so much of the focus is on al-Shabaab, and uh, what should uh, President Farmajo and his government do about this? Thank you. I, I think that your question was um, really put to the test a few months ago when Mogadishu appeared at one point to be on the brink of uh, major uh, political violence uh, that had very little to do with al-Shabaab, that had to do with uh, a rising clan tensions within the government um, that had everyone right at the edge of their seats. And that was a wake-up call uh, reminder that much of the political violence and the threat of armed conflict in the country um, has uh, has to do with other forces besides al-Shabaab. Uh, al-Shabaab, however, is deeply embedded in the political violence uh, directly and indirectly. And, and that's what I'd really like to get to uh, in my comments is when we, when we think about political violence in Somalia, it's part of... Uh, a, a set of other syndromes that includes corruption and that includes intentional political deinstitutionalization or conscious efforts to undermine and prevent rule of law and a, and a functional government. Um, those three things can't be understood in isolation from one another. Um, and they form a system uh, that has evolved in Somalia over the past quarter of a century of state collapse. Systems are by definition, pervasive. Systems uh, are integrated, so all different sections of society are, are, are bound up in it. Um, and systems are self-reinforcing. And I think what we have seen in Somalia is the rise of a system that includes routinized rules of the game on the use of political violence, both by al-Shabaab, uh, by politicians, by business people, by clans, uh, all in pursuit of two things in Somalia, which are which dominate the political landscape. One is survival, uh, and the other is appropriation of resources. The fact is, Somalis are compelled to work within this system that has emerged uh, over the past quarter of a century, even if they hate it. And many Somalis, of course, hate this. Um, but there's just no way to ignore it or try to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, this system has included the rise of cartels and networks. That's really what we see both with Shabab, uh, with clans, with, with some of the government agencies. Or this, is a, this is a network of networks in Somalia, uh, a set of competing mafias and cartels uh, that make use of political violence when, when they see fit. Um, it's also uh, characterized by uh, uh, very high levels of collusion. Um, and that, again, gets to your question about al-Shabaab. Uh, the fight about uh, against al-Shabaab has to be put in the context of al-Shabaab often colluding with the very parties that we think are fighting it. Uh, al-Shabaab has very effectively penetrated 
those other uh, uh, entities, whether it's AMISOM or the Somali government or regional member states. Um, it has done a very effective job of creating insecurity uh, and then providing the means to protect you from it, uh, which is another way to say it's a very good extortion racket, uh, what we called taxes a little while ago by al-Shabaab, others would call uh, extortion. Um, and and all of this, of course, has harnessed clanism in a particularly destructive way. Um, so those things, again, all feed into a system that's in place that's going to be very difficult to break uh, that includes, again, routinized use of political violence. There are rules of the game uh, that, that, that people have with regard to violence. I, and I say this because part of your question was, what can President Formaggio do? And I think when you're thinking about systems, it's just much bigger than one person, what, much bigger than one leader. Um, it, it, systems do change, and I think that's where we have to be optimistic um, and, and try to find uh, channels of energy and, and, and interests in Somalia that, that look to replace and undermine this system. Um, and, and, and we do have them. Um, they're going to have to come from both above and below. Uh, we're going to have to see leadership by example uh, at, the, at the highest ends of the government, uh, restricting and eventually eliminating the use of political violence. Um, we're going to have to see grassroots movements uh, that create new rules of the game, that this is not done in our city, this is not done in our region. Um, and I suspect it'll... Examples of this, Ken. Are there any examples uh -huh. of this already happening? Um, Certainly, uh, across uh, that's one of the things about Somalia that's so fascinating is that you can come across such diverse uh, situations from one town uh, to the next. Uh, Somaliland uh, has done, I think, a, a, a very good job at establishing different rules of the game regarding mobilization of clanism, regarding use of political violence. I think it's slipped uh, in recent years, and that's uh, that's a bit worrisome, um, but they clearly have a different set of, of rules of the game regarding uh, political violence. Um, in uh, in Kismayo, now you've got enforced uh, peace. Uh, there are rules of the game that uh, aren't necessarily uh, likely to hold if uh, if the the, the Jubaland uh, government uh, were not imposing it by force, but it's a relatively peaceful place. Uh, we've seen over time towns and cities like in in Borama. There was a time years ago uh, uh, where I, uh, I spent time in in Beladwane and in Johar, where they they had relative peace and they they had. Um, they had an, what what some might call an elite compact uh, about what what you can and can't do. Um, that's going to take time uh, and, and is going to be subject to reversals. But I think that's the only way to see an eventual uh, 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 decline in the use of political violence as a as a, as a tool uh, that the elites use against one another. Thank you very much, Ken. Um, now we can uh, start to take questions. Uh, for both from uh, the floor here and also from the online audience. Uh, we'll start with people who are here, and uh, I'll take questions in twos or threes. And uh, when, when you ask your questions, can you please make sure that you give your name and your affiliation, and also keep your questions or your comments relatively brief? Uh, there's a question, and there's microphones. There's a question there. A question at the back, and then a question here. <coughs> oh, 
Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is uh, Abdul Rasak. I'm, I'm one of the Somaliland, Somaliland diaspora community member. I live in London. Um, I've got two questions for Mr. Katin, UN, UN Secretary General Info to Somalia. And my first question is, there's a more than 20,000 African troops in Somalia, and still there's no bees that the people in Mogadishu, they are still hiding in their places. And there's no peaceful place in the southern part of Somalia. Uh, w do you think that the Somali themselves is in the south and not ready to to build their country? And my second question is: I'm from a Somaliland, uh, but the time you were talking about the the latest situation in Somalia, you were mostly talk about what's going on in the southern part of the country in Somalia. But we are different country. We are we. We were two countries united in 1960, and now we are in a better place than Somalia. There have been a peaceful transfer of power. There's a free and fair election in Somaliland. Uh, we call them, we call our country a, a most democratic country in the East Africa. What, what's your question related um, yeah, to Somalia? My question is, uh, do, you, do, you, do you follow what's going on in Somaliland, or is, uh, you are ignoring about the facts on the ground? That's my question. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Um, and then there was a question at the back by the screen there. Hi, my name is Conrad Heiner. I'm a member of the International Election Observation Mission to Somaliland's recent presidential election, which I must stress is an entirely neutral mission. It takes no position on Somaliland on recognition or anything like that. It's funded by the UK government and we're actually launching our report on the election observation in London tomorrow. My question is to Ken. Ken, uh, you mentioned uh, Somaliland as a um, as a example in in the region that does things differently, does does has has good rules of the game. But you also mentioned Somaliland having slipped of late. Could you expand a little bit on that, please? Thank you very much. And then there was a question here. <coughs> Is it on? No. Yeah, yeah it's on. One, two, yes. Okay, uh, my name's Wayne Green. I'm an uh, independent consultant in international relations and uh, Global Affairs Limited, and I've had some uh, interest in Somalia. Um, the question I would like to say is, today, does a president have the full trust of the Somali people of Somalia? And can the UN guarantee that there will be a free election, one person, one vote, as promised in the next presidential election? Thank you very much. Um, I think, Michael, uh, quite a few of these questions okay. are directed to you, but we'll make sure other people okay. answer as well. Um, have, you, have you got... Sure, I'll be uh, very yeah. brief. So, Thank I mean, on, on the question about, you know, are Somalis ready to build their own security and security forces and peace, I think the answer probably has to be no. Um, I don't think either the political agreements are in place, nor are the institutional or operational capacities available for Somalis, particularly in South Southwest, to assume those responsibilities. The good news is the government is very straight up about this. I mean, the government took the brave step a few months ago to undertake, with the supporters and partners, including the UN, something called an Operational Readiness Assessment, an ORA, which is a very kind of long-winded way of saying they did a kind of audit of the capacity uh, of Somali forces 
uh, and it has revealed that the Somali army and indeed the Somali police are simply not in a position to assume responsibility for these things uh, for any number of reasons, uh, some of them very obvious and to do with training and equipment and so on, but some of them, it's not so explicitly stated, is that there simply isn't sufficient political consensus uh, whereby uh, these forces are trusted. And so there's a long way to go before Somali security forces are both able, uh, acceptable to the population, uh, accountable, where there's clarity about to whom they are accountable, and affordable. So the answer is no. In terms of visits to Somaliland, I, I go up there quite often. I've had meetings with President Solano, with President Behe. Uh, one of the things I had to research, because I was asked the same question as you just asked, is why does the UN ignore Somaliland? By the way, when I go to Kismayo, I'm asked, why does the UN ignore Kismayo? When I go to Bella Twain, they say, why does the UN ignore Bella Twain? And everybody feels that they're being ignored. Uh, but we did do uh, some research into where the UN is deploying people, spending money, and all the rest of it. And Somaliland actually gets uh, more than, depending on how you measure the population, but the more than its sort of uh, share. So we certainly, uh, one of the things that we are really supporting is uh, the idea that there should be a negotiated, you know, there should be a process of negotiation between Somaliland and Somalia to sort out its problems, because whatever the final status of Somaliland, it must be the result of, of negotiations. I don't think uh, violence is going to get us there. The other question was, you know, can the UN, but does the president have full confidence of the people? Does the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom have the full confidence <laughs> of the people? Does the, you know, the president of the United States? No, the answer is no, not the full confidence. But I think there's a... What's that? There's a different context here to Somalia. We can talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> yes, but I mean, you know, of course, the 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 the, the, the president, uh, as as Mary said, it was amazing how popular his election was. He's just done this tour of the northern areas, which arguably uh, is more friendly towards him than some other parts. But that went extremely well. Um, so I think he, you know, and there have been a few setbacks, but every president, every prime minister, tends to enjoy a honeymoon period followed by a bit of a dip. Uh, and that's no different in, in Somalia. Can the UN guarantee one person, one vote elections? I think it's, behind your question is a, a, n a number of assumptions. I don't think it's our job to guarantee one person, one vote elections. Our job is, you know, the Somalis have collectively written a memo to themselves. We will have one person, one vote elections in 2020, 2021. Our job is to work with the Somalis at the federal level state level, district level, to figure out how that can actually happen, what needs to be in place if that prospect is to be realized. And again, as with everything in Somalia, it requires political agreements on the electoral model, it requires agreements on how you're going to do voter registration, it requires agreements on the size of the constituency, is it going to be district, state, national? What kind of, uh, is it going to be proportional representation? Is it going to be closed list? Is it going to be open list? And all these things are political negotiations. And of course, because Somalia is still very clan-based, every clan is looking at each of these options from the perspective of which one is going to be most advantageous to them. So the point I would make is that, you know, and it actually speaks to something that Sarah said, one of the things that we want to do better is apply conflict prevention and conflict resolution methodologies to processes like electoral reform, 
constitutional review, building an army and a police force. I mean, you know, one of the lessons of Somalia is that if people are left out, you will pay a price for that. Maybe not immediately. Elite deals that exclude um, minority groups uh, or marginalized groups uh, will not hold <laughs> eventually. So in build this moment of opportunity to build institutions, if we, we have got to get the design right, and I don't think we do enough uh, in this kind of thing to draw upon the lessons we've learned around the world and in Somalia uh, in the way we go about these things. Can I just underscore yeah. what Michael said? Because I think you know, this, is, this is something we've seen in country after country as you know, they, they sort of struggle on this transition towards you know, greater stability, whether it is post-conflict. You know, it, it, it's, it's a very ambiguous term you know, when, it, when a country is really in a post-conflict phase. But elections becomes, uh, become a yardstick for the international community to measure the success of a country, which very often actually aggravates some of the tensions. Um, and I think what Michael is saying is very important because, you know, having a date that it, the international community would like to see earlier rather than, than, you know, sooner rather than later, in many ways could be counter to, you know, the process of, you know, stability in the country and, you know, the importance of really getting the process right and ensuring that the Somalis have the time, you know, to think about what is the best process to get there, what is the best process of constitutional reform, that they really have the time to design the process that is best fit for them. And the, our role as international partners is to support that process externally, you know, not to to kind of uh, force them <laughs> into a, a certain, you know, on a certain path that we design on the basis of our, you know, technocratic solutions that we have designed, you know, somewhere in the West. But we really accompany, you know, that process, uh, you know, sensitively and, and intelligently. Thank you very much. And I think, um, Ken, can we just turn to you with Conrad's question, which was about, um, you mentioned that... Uh, some uh, aspects of uh, Somaliland's uh, relatively successful uh, situation have started to slip. If you could elaborate on that. I, I could. If you, if you would bear with me, I'd love to piggyback on something that uh, Michael uh, alluded to a minute ago, and that also ties into something that Rashid was, was talking about first, and that is this notion of, of lack of inclusivity in governance and in peace accords and in resource sharing ultimately always undermining uh, a, a compact or an alliance or a government. And, and I think that's really important because um, whether they're minority groups or just clans that feel that they've been marginalized, um, one of the realities in Somalia is that they, those, those aggrieved groups uh, have easy recourse to uh, to uh, essentially the role of spoiler by turning to Al Shabab. Al Shabab has been very very effective at uh, at uh, uh, taking advantage of these kinds of of uh, clan grievances. And what's important about that is that that's a political problem, not a military problem. Uh, in order to shrink Shabab's reach into clans and its temporary alliances that it exploits, um, Somali politicians have to address the grievances. And if they do, then there's still going to be huge pressure, as Rashid said, for the Somali National Army to be put up to, to speed so that it can replace Amisom. Um, but it'll at least reduce some of the pressure on them if we can come up with some of these political solutions. Now, on to Somaliland. Um, 
first of all, foreigners who speak about Somaliland are immediately in grave danger of being criticized and attacked on all sides. So I'm going to try to be very careful about this. Uh, whether you support Somaliland's uh, current um, um, status uh, as a self-declared independent state or you don't, you have to recognize the enormous success that it has had over the past quarter century of keeping the peace and allowing for a chunk of territory where three million or so people have been able to live their lives in security and with some degree of economic recovery uh, for a quarter of a century. And that is something we have to be very attentive not to allow to backslide. That uh, would be a huge shame if that if that occurred uh, because we weren't paying attention to Somaliland. We weren't trying to help as best we could uh, continue to stabilize that zone of economic recovery, democracy, um, and, and, and stability. Um, why I say that there has been backsliding, I think all Somalilanders and, and anyone else who's been there know this, um, but there has been deterioration over the years in terms of, uh, first of all, uh, again, deinstitutionalization. We have seen uh, the government shrink to a smaller and smaller circle of uh, family members around the former president, Silano, uh, the disproportionate influence of a handful of large companies uh, operating in uh, Somaliland that, that really disempowered uh, the population, uh, high levels of corruption uh, that discouraged a lot of Somalilanders uh, creeping authoritarianism at one point, slippage on civil liberties and the, and the free press uh, and freedom of assembly. Um, and then for me, one of the things that, that worried me the most the last time I was there was just the level of clanism that has, that, that has survived and in some ways gotten worse in Somaliland um, was discouraging. Uh, you, you see this in big ways and small. I mean, different neighborhoods uh, are all carved up by sub-clan where you can and can't buy a house, where you can and can't set up a business. Um, every clan has got their own university. Every sub-clan has got their own bottled water company. Um, what I saw was less uh, of a sense of Somaliland identity than I have seen in the past and more slippage to sub-clanism. Now, that may be temporary. I hope it's temporary. I hope the recent election has helped to reverse that, uh, but that's never a good sign. And when you combine that with some other, I think, systemic problems in Somaliland, 80% urban unemployment in Hargeisa, uh, the rise of gangs, which so far haven't been too violent, but they're pretty ubiquitous. They're causing more and more trouble. Um, I, I worry about those things, uh, and, and I hope that Somaliland can, can uh, engage in a course correction on them for the sake of the three million or so people who live there. Thanks very much, Ken. Um, I'll come back to the floor uh, very soon, but just to give our um, viewers and listeners online a chance to ask some questions. They've sent lots of them. So um, I will start from uh, a question from... Jok Maduk Jok, which seems like a South Sudanese name, uh, which is great. Thanks for taking part in this conversation. Um, and maybe this one could be for Rashid. Uh, his question is, is Ethiopia undermining development in Somalia by reducing cross-border river, cross river water through its construction of dams? Does the international community need to step in? So maybe, Rashid, you could talk about that and maybe a little bit more about uh, Ethiopia's relationship with Somalia. And then we ha also have a question from our man in, on the horn, who I know who he is. I don't know if anyone else does. Anyway, he's someone who works in Mogadishu. He says, 
Where does the panel see Al-Shabaab in the future of Somalia? And how do we reconcile the innate appeal of its nationalist Islamist agenda to many Somalis and even parts of the government itself? Maybe, Rashid, you could comment on that as well. I hope you're, you can hear what I'm saying. Um, and then there's one more question, uh, which uh, comes from an unnamed person in an unnamed place, uh, which says, what does the panel think about the calls of the Somali prime minister to accelerate debt relief to fight terrorism? So maybe, Rashid, if we could start with you to talk about um, Ethiopia and I suppose the the innate appeal, as our man in the horn sees it, of uh, Al-Shabaab to people even within the government itself? Yes. Um, I'm not an expert on, on uh, the environment, so a lot of what I'm going to say is actually speculative. Uh, but clearly, anyone who has followed Somalia, uh, especially southern Somalia, will know that many of the perennial rivers are drying up, uh, southern Somalia is now uh, devastated in terms of uh, environmental, uh, you know, degradation. Um, and clearly the Shabeli and the Juba are the two main rivers in South Somalia. Uh, much of the agriculture, uh, subsistence agriculture uh, in South Central Somalia actually rests on the availability of water. Um, the water levels have been declining. Uh, now, whether that may be uh, the result of uh, environmental changes, um, you know, climate, uh, you know, global warming, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I am very skeptical about the idea that Ethiopia is deliberately diverting water away from Somalia. Um, however, I think it is time for the government in Mogadishu uh, and also the government in Addis Ababa to begin also to debate uh, uh, the availability, these river issues and water resources. Clearly, water resources isn't only the Nile. You know, there are many uh, rivers that <laughs> flow from the Ethiopian islands uh, on which, uh, you know, Soma South Somalia depends. And I remember a lecture uh, Professor Ken gave many years ago in which he actually stressed this point that, you know, it is time for these uh, resource issues to be part of the diplomatic, uh, you know, discourse and engagement uh, with Ethiopia. Regarding um, Al-Shabaab, I think we haven't spoken a lot about Al-Shabaab in this debate today, but I just want to stress that uh, Al-Shabaab remains a serious threat to Somalia. And actually, Al-Shabaab is on the resurgence. Uh, it really is um, threatening many of the major towns, including Kismayo, including South Central Somalia, but also Mogadishu. And Unless Somalia's National Army and the security services get better, the danger is uh, Al-Shabaab will progressively, uh, you know, um, move into these cities and regain control. And we keep on stressing, and we should actually reiterate again, that as long as the government does not um, deal with conflict issues, with local governance, improving local governance, especially the discord between the subclans, Al-Shabaab will continue to exploit those differences to rebuild its strength. And we see that happening in, in many parts of Somalia. 
Um, um, the question in terms of um, what our man on the horn describes as the innate appeal of Al-Shabaab's nationalist Islamist agenda to so many people in Somalia, including, he says, people in the government. That is a difficult uh, question because um, no doubt uh, there is a strong Islamist component in the current government, um, in especially senior uh, positions of leadership. Also, we know that there are shadowy Islamist groups that have been competing power in Somalia for a number of years. Now, the way in which Islamist uh, uh, politicians have, have, have maneuvered in the last uh, decade is actually to prop up politicians or to basically work uh, with secular leaders. My suspicion or my fear is that as Somalia moves towards uh, the one-man, one-fold, Many of these, uh, uh, you know, shadow Islamist groups will come out into the open, and it will, I think, given their organisation and uh, resources, uh, it is highly likely that uh, in any free uh, election, uh, an Islamist party will come to government. Now, whether that is a bad thing, I really don't know. But yes, uh, Islamism remains a very popular, um, you know, force organising principle. In Somali politics, it's not going to go away. And a lot of that is also based with a certain nationalist uh, uh, narrative as well. Thank you very much, uh, Rashid. I wonder, Michael, do you want to talk about the um, issue of debt relief briefly? Um, or shall I pass okay. it to someone else? Yeah, no, well, uh, you know, the question was what do we think of the Prime Minister invoking debt relief as a means of defeating? Al-Shabaab, uh, of all the reasons deployed to campaign for debt relief, uh, you, know, you know, that that is not the one that mo is most use usually, uh, you know, uh, used. But I can see where he's coming from, because I think what he's basically saying is that unless the country can start providing basic services to the population, including, uh, in particular, health and education and basic infrastructure, vocational training, job opportunities, public works, then the country remains perennially dependent, uh, uh, vulnerable to extremism. So uh, I, think, I think that is an issue. If I can just uh, you know, build on or react to something that uh, Rashid has just said, um, you know, I think, again, there are many Somalis in the room, so I, I, I say this, uh, I, I, I'm happy to be contradicted, but, but I think if, uh, you know, one of the lessons of Somalia over the last few decades is that any, a clandestine state capture uh, program uh, is likely to result in further violence uh, and conflict. You know, state capture, whether it's by private uh, you know, business interests or ideological interests uh, is really uh, a recipe for continued conflict. So I think the challenge is how do you maintain political space? How do you continue to ensure that everybody can be included uh, in the conversation? And I, I don't think this is a complete mystery, by the way. I think there are a number of ways in which uh, this can be done. Uh, you know, Clearly, federalism is not everybody's cup of tea, but one of the things that I point to when, when I have this conversation is that federalism 
is basically what you make of it. I mean, it's interesting, the Emirates, the federal government exists at the pleasure of the seven Emirates. That's where it gets its money from, its legitimacy from. In other places, it's the other way around. The federal member states exist because the federal government is prepared to devolve powers. Somalia's got to figure out where on this spectrum it wants to be, uh, whether it comes to security, whether it comes to taxation, whether it comes to, uh, to uh, you know, things like revenue collection, resource sharing, concessions, and so on. And I think the important thing is that that conversation about where Somalia wants to be must be maintained and should not be suppressed. It should not become uh, a clandestine conversation. Uh, and I think there are a number of things that can be done to ensure that it remains open and public. And one of the things that I urge uh, partners in the international community is to respond to the many Somalis who say to me, how do we continue to ensure openness uh, in this discussion? Because anything else is, is, is going to take us down a very complicated uh, path. Thank, thank you. Um, I think we have time for one more lot of questions. So we could have, uh, did you want to ask a question? Yeah. Um, very, but very just hold hold on, and then we'll have here, and then um, the gentleman at the back, and then you. Yeah. So maybe if we can start with you, thank you. And remember to give your name and uh, uh, yeah. your affiliation, and please keep the questions really brief. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Abdinasi Ismail, Somali journalist based here in London. When Somali Parliament rejected recently the deal between United Arab Emirates, Somaliland, and Ethiopia. The CEO of the TB World, Sultan bin Suleiman, said Somali government has nothing to do with the new agreement. Recognizing self-parliament state of Somaliland is an independent country for 28 years. Ironically, a couple of days before that, he was complaining about a Djibouti seizing illegally one of the TB Worlds in Djibouti. Do the panel thing, United Arab Emirates is causing regional unrest and tensions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and then there was here. Thank you. Um, I'm Laura Hammond from SOAS, University of London. Um, uh, Michael, I guess this question is primarily aimed at you, but uh, and it follows on from your last comment, which was about having the conversation around the relationship between center and federal uh, units of governance be public, be transparent, and how so my question is, how much does the process of constitutional reform have to do with that? And is that still a major priority of this government? Or is what, what seems to somewhat be happening as a kind of peeling off of different kinds of debates into separate discussions? And the danger then is there that they don't come back together or that they don't remain in the public domain for debate. So I wondered if you could comment on that. Thank you. And there was a gentleman yeah, at the back. Uh, Mohamed Shiri, uh, independent consultant. Um, my, my question goes to, I think, uh, Michael and also to uh, uh, Professor Ken. It's to do with the, uh, the political files that's been talked about. Um, for Ken, how do you see this um, coming to an end? There's been um, um, extreme political violence in the Somali context lately. And what's the role of the UN in terms of dealing with uh, um, or, or curbing the, the, the recent political uh, violence. And my other question is to do with the transition. Um, Michael touched upon the fact that the Somalis are not capable 
the Somali uh, National Army or Somali forces are not capable uh, meeting the security needs of Somalis. If that's the case, are we admitting failure of the transition plan completely, that the government also put forward a draft transition plan? Are we admitting a failure in that? Are we, and, and what was the, sorry, and, and the, 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 the other point I want to raise about the, the London conference, there's been a security architect and a security bank. Is, is that all lost? That's thank, the, thank, thanks yeah, very thanks. much. And then I, we'll just take one more. There's a gentleman at the back there. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Saeed Gelle. I am a Somali citizen living in London, one of the diaspora, Somali diaspora. My question is, uh, Katie, um, it is about uh, Somali sovereignty, Somali sovereignty and unity. Uh, recently, uh, the federal state of Somalia has been having an issue relating to the intervention of foreign countries in their internal resources. And among those uh, issues are, you know, Somali parliament consisting of, you know, MBs that represent every corner of Somalia. Among them are, you know, members from Somaliland itself, and also the other, other tribes of Somalia. When is the Somali government and the UN mission will recognize that Somalia is a sovereignty country and will keep its territorial integrity and talk to Somaliland government as a one tribe among Somalis who have shares, power sharing members <coughs> in the Somali government? Thanks. That's my question. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Um, Michael, there's a lot of questions put to you. Um, <laughs> Do you want to address them, and then we'll and quickly go around? Unless you ask uh, Ken or but you, Sarah you, Rashid to answer. You them. go first, and then we'll go around the other panelists, okay. if that's OK. okay. Um, and just keep it as brief as you can. OK, brief as Thank I can. Um, you know, there have been many other deals. This is rela relating to the Berbera port deal, which everybody is very exercised about. You know, the funny thing is there have been many deals over the last five years uh, of various kinds in Somaliland. And the Somali government has m more or less gone along with them. It hasn't raised an objection, uh, partly because the position of the last Somali government and indeed of this Somali government, and the president's on record as saying this, is that he has no problem with activities that promote economic growth, that build infrastructure, that allow anyone in what he considers to be Somalia including Somaliland, to improve their lives and their security. I think the issue is that there was no consultation with Somalia in a way that there had been in the last five years, very informal as it was. Uh, I think there was also an issue of the timing of the announcement of the deal, which was most unfortunate. I mean, the Prime Minister of Somalia happened to be in Abu Dhabi when it was announced. That actually forced the Prime Minister, for understandable reasons, to denounce it, which then resulted in a, the, you know, the, the thing that you referred about, the DP world people, who are essentially a company making a very political statement 
and raising questions as to whether that statement by the company represented the official views of the, gov of the government of the Emirates. That question has not been answered. The point is that Somaliland, whether we like it or not, is not recognized by the African Union as an independent state, nor is it recognized by the UN as, uh, as an independent entity. And ultimately, the status of Somaliland must be decided by Somalis themselves through a proper negotiated process. And both Bihi and Famajo are committed to that. They have told me personally, and they have put it out there, that they want that discussion to take place. The question is, how can you organize that discussion when every time you think you're getting close to beginning a conversation, there's some other drama that you know fires everybody up uh, and puts the leaders into a very difficult position in which it's very awkward for them to be seen as engaging in these discussions. Uh, the fact that I said that the Somali National Army is not ready does not at all mean that the transition plan uh, is irrelevant or redundant. I made the point that it was very brave of the government of Somalia to do an assessment of the capability of its security forces. I think that's great. They've now got a baseline. It means you've got a baseline for the transition plan. If anything, it makes the transition plan more meaningful. You know, so uh, that's the way I would answer that question. There's a long way to go on the transition plan. Um, uh, you know, when will the UN, what was it, Somali sovereignty and unity, when will the Somali government... Sorry, the what? Let's leave that one for Ken. Okay, I think, how ahead. about the constitu yeah. oh, the Constitution one, Laura's question. Yes. yes. I mean, um, this happens to be the latest political agenda of the government of Somalia. It's online. It's called, you know, it came out uh, a couple of weeks ago. The first item on it is federalization and the constitutional review process. It is officially the top priority of the federal government of Somalia. Uh, there are lots of problems in pursuing this constitutional review process. And there are those who say, oh, we can do the whole thing in the next year. There are others who say you can never do it until the status of Somaliland is sorted out, until the status of Benadir is sorted out, and then there's people all along the spectrum. I suspect that what we're going to see is a commitment to this process once roles and responsibilities for it can be, have been sorted out, and it's already been six months discussion about that. What's the respective role of the government, of the Joint Oversight Committee of Parliament, of the Independent Commission on the Review of the Constitution? So there's a real argument about whose role is it to move this forward and what should they do. Once that's sorted out, you then start the process around the country. I think what people are realizing is that you can't wait for the constitutional review process to be completed. A number of interim agreements need to be put in place relating to security, relating to resource and revenue sharing, relating to you know, concessions and all sorts of other things. Uh, you can't say, let's wait to the end of this thing and then, then we'll sort these things out. You've got to maintain momentum. So I see a two-track thing. One is pursuit of this very complicated process at the same time as a number of interim agreements uh, that will allow the conversation to continue and will allow the federal process to develop a, a stronger substructure. Thank, thank you, Michael. Uh, Ken, there was a question for you about political violence and yes, how it and that, could... That, yeah. 
if would you mind repeating that? I had a, a, a very loud lawnmower go past my window repeatedly <laughs> while he was speaking. I didn't hear a thing. It was basically about, um, you know, how how you okay, you can bring it to an end all of the these UN? different forms of political violence, and it, it, does the UN have any part to play in that? how the political violence will end. Um, I, I would go back to the observation uh, that I made earlier about rules of the game. Uh, every country, every society, communities even within countries have different rules of the game about when political violence is uh, legitimate uh, or usable and, and, and when it's not. Um, and those rules change over time. Uh, one of the things that's impressed me in Somalia is how quickly those rules can change in a particular location. Uh, a, a, a city that, uh, or town that's been very violent, uh, then suddenly a new agreement is reached and there's very little political violence. Uh, and of course the reversal, the backsliding is also the case. Um, my hope is that the political violence will end when, by, by uh, generational changes in Somalia. Uh, once you've got habits uh, of the use of political violence, as ubiquitous as they are in Somalia now, they're going to be hard to break. Uh, but there's a new generation uh, in Somalia, 75% of the population's under the age of 30. Um, and the hope is that they can mobilize and, and start to change the rules of the game among themselves. Uh, but it'll take time. It'll be slow. It's going to require a lot of socialization. Uh, of Somalis of themselves. I don't know that it, the internationals uh, of any sort, whether the UN or other international actors, have uh, a, a really significant role in that. That's an internal discussion. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Rashid, do you have any brief uh, reflections on those questions before we wrap up? Um, I would like to concur with, uh, with His Excellency, the SRSG, about uh, the UAE. I think. Um, Right now, if you are following developments in Mogadishu, it is the hot topic. Uh, the prime Minister, the, the president of Somaliland has just flown to the UAE. Um, the president of Somalia plans to go uh, probably tomorrow to Qatar. Uh, so the whole geopolitics of uh, this crisis, uh, you know, is spilling over into Somalia and causing a lot of uh, destabilization. But you know, again, um, I, I I also followed the leadership in Mogadishu because clearly they have lost sight of what their interest is. Their interest is actually to win over Somaliland, uh, to build a strategic partnership with Somaliland and to, pro to progressively uh, find a settlement to the final status issues. Right now, the way they are behaving is actually alienating uh, Somaliland. Th thank you, Rashid. And, uh Basically, we have run out of time, uh, but before we, we go, I'd like to thank everybody who's been watching and listening online, wherever you are in the world, all of you for coming. And uh, just very briefly, uh, if each member of the panel could give their sort of final reflections, just one or two sentences each, that would be great. Uh, so maybe, Michael, if you could just give a very, very brief uh, thought to, for people to take away. You began by talking about the enthusiasm of the government, and then, by implication, you were saying, "Oh well, we're now in a you know totally different space, and everything is going pear-shaped." I think that's a pretty tough interpretation of what's going on. I still think we are in a moment of opportunity. Uh, I think there's.
despite the challenges, despite the vulnerability of Somali politics uh, to uh, corruption, to interference, uh, I think there is still hope that many of that, that this agenda of the government can be fulfilled. My thought, and by the way, what is the alternative to this? I mean, that's, you know, I, I think we've got a government now that is probably the best we've had in a while. I don't see what the alternative is. I think the key thing is for Somalis to talk to themselves in a respectful way. Failure to do that is making them very vulnerable, uh, including to being uh, part of a broader geopolitical game, yeah. which is not going to be good for the people of Somalia in addressing their many problems, whether they're humanitarian, development or security related. Thank you, Michael. That was great. Sarah? I'd like to echo what Michael said. And, and you know, what's offer a reminder to us as, you know, the friends of Somalia, the partners are supposed to support the Somalis. I think we have a tendency as international partners to always want to see quick results. You know, I often say that, you know, it took my country 70 years after the end of the civil war in Italy with the Second World War to finally contemplate the idea of electing somebody who was not related to the fascist regime. And yet, you know, in these countries we expect, you know, people to move on, you know, their traumas and the societal divisions really quickly. So it's for us to have the patience to <laughs> allow the Somalis to work through these divisions, to overcome the trauma, to overcome the difficulties, to rebuild their society, supporting them, you know, with intelligence and patience and giving, you know, if, if there is anything we can do is help create the space for dialogue, you know, sort of support them quietly and without sort of hurrying them uh, too much and making sure that the dialogue is not just at the at the central level, the federal level, but it's, you know, it's also local. It's, it's really looking, you know, we're talking about the causes of political violence. There are so many mm -hmm. different causes, you know, looking at what is um, pushing the youth is so disillusioned, you know, looking at the, the differences between the clans, looking at the challenges around the sense of injustice and grievance. It's all of that that needs to find the space um, to, to you know, be addressed and, and healed. Thank you very much. Uh, Ken, perhaps we could hear your final, final brief thoughts. Uh, I would say that uh, business as usual in Somalia is not an option. Uh, though I agree with Sarah that generally we need to be patient and give time and space. Somalia doesn't have a lot of time right now, uh, particularly if Amisom does uh, continue its withdrawal. Um, the kleptocracy that has emerged in the country um, is robbing the Somali National Army of, among other things, salaries for its, its soldiers. If they go unpaid, they desert or defect, uh, and there's no chance of standing up that Somali National Army uh, in time uh, to provide the protection that is going to be needed as Amazon withdraws. Thank you, Ken. And uh, finally, Rashid? Yes, I think I will agree with everything that has been said. Just uh, one, one comment, which is uh, the current government in Somalia uh, should be a national reconciliation government. It should stop behaving like the governments of uh, Siad Barre. It is not a hard government. Its desire is to build relationships, uh, to also, uh, uh, you know, rebuild the country. And the way and the, the window is very narrow. If they continue behaving the way they are doing, they are basically going to lose uh, this transition, and we will also have another transitional government. 
Well, those are tough words to uh, end with, uh, but don't forget Michael's optimism, which I think <laughs> is very much needed, uh, as well as... Uh, and I'd just like to thank all of you for coming here today. Um, there'll be a video recording of the event will be available tomorrow. And also, um, there's some tea and coffee available. So anyone who wants to continue with the conversations, please stay behind. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.